Hey everyone, Dan Keeler here, founder of Frontier Markets News, with another feast of insights and ideas from outside of most people's personal comfort zone. In this episode, I'm talking to Chad Oval, who is a partner at Mekong Capital, a Vietnam-focused private equity firm specializing in consumer-driven businesses. This is the first in a two-part series. In the next episode, I'll be talking to a public equities specialist about how that space is evolving in Vietnam and the wider region. I'm actually in Vietnam as I'm recording this, and I can see why Chad and the many other business leaders I've met here are so excited. The prospects for this nation that was one of the most successful in managing the pandemic and is one of the primary beneficiaries of the current trend for disinvesting in China seem, well, pretty much unlimited. Chad shares a bunch of fascinating insights into a country that really does fit the description of one of the world's most exciting markets. But you don't want to hear it from me. Let's hear from Chad. So, Chad, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Pleasure, Dan. And I've been following you for quite a few years, so I'm excited to be here. Good, good. Well, glad to hear it. Hopefully, some of my listeners will have done that too. Yeah. Um, so, we're here to talk about Vietnam, and um, I'm personally super excited about it. I'm actually in Vietnam at the moment with my um, Kellogg students. It's the first time I've been here for four years. And the vibe that I'm getting is just really very, very positive. But um, I don't want to kind of presuppose what you're going to say, but um, I'd love it if you could tell me a bit about what you're seeing in terms of the investment environment in the country. I've been here 26 years, so been through quite a journey of watching this country evolve. But I'd say what's exciting about the investment environment today is that we see an opportunity for investment sizes across the full spectrum from early stage uh, seed investing, VC investing, both small and medium-sized VC, to early stage PE, uh, through mid-cap PE, and even large Pan-Asia buyout PE. And it's really kind of the first time, and I've been in this industry 10 years, it's the first time I've seen that we have what would be a very broad ecosystem of company maturity, company size, and uh, that provides uh, opportunity for investors of every kind to be in the market. Um, and of course, in the public markets, um, we've got companies of different maturity um, and what we've seen a very positive development of some very large conglomerates and some large cap companies emerged over the last uh, five to 10 years. So it's a much more investable universe than it was a decade ago, um, much more optionality for investors. Um, and I think that's, you know, brought a much more healthy ecosystem of many different types of investors. Aside from that, I mean, one of the most interesting things we see is the evolution of the entrepreneur. And uh, where, you know, when, when I came here 25 years ago, the private sector was just getting its very beginning. And the private sector was essentially a small grocery store in somebody's the front of their house. I mean, that's what the private sector was very much mom and pop and general trade. Um, and it was not investable to any extent for anybody who's an institutional investor. Um, but the entrepreneurs back then were as exciting and optimistic as they are today. Uh, but what we're seeing today is entrepreneurs who are uh, people who've traveled globally, people who've studied and, and brought learnings back from all over the world, uh, entrepreneurs who are young, extremely dynamic, worldly, and uh, very keen to partner with investors to grow their business as quickly as possible. Um, yeah. And that's yeah. that's a very healthy evolution for, for the investor community. Yeah. 
Um, wow, so many threads there that I'd love to uh, to pull on. Um, I mean, I must say, even in the four years since I was last here, it feels like there's been a kind of maturing of um, of the sort of investment space. Um, I, I'd, aside from asking the question of what on earth did you come here for 25 years ago if the only opportunities was to invest in small grocery stores, I'm going to put that one to the side. <laughs> but... Um, but I, I, I'm interested in um, in people's, you know, in entrepreneurs' understanding of, of the private capital opportunities, the you know, private equity. Um, one of the things that I hear quite often in small emerging markets is that the family-owned businesses just don't get the concept of private equity and aren't particularly interested in it. So tell me a bit about how that's evolved and, and what you're seeing in the current environment. Well, historically, there's been three business types in this country. One is state-owned enterprises uh, that eventually go down the journey of equitizing if the government no longer wants to keep them fully state-owned. The second is family, which you just mentioned. And the third would be single co-founder or multi-co-founder. For a private equity investor like Mekong Capital, uh, the best possible partner for us would be a multi-co-founder business. Um, They, from day one, when they founded the company, they operate on a basis of consensus and dialogue and discussion between themselves as three, four, five partners. So for us coming in and being the fifth or sixth partner at the table, it's a very natural step for them. Um, it is challenging to invest in family businesses, um, and we have done it over the years. Um, but one of the challenges uh, we continue to face uh, investing in family companies is uh, they tend to be loyalty cultures. Uh, the founders tend to be organized around um, hiring people they can trust. Uh, and that's why it started off as a family business in the very first place. Um, and um, in a country like Vietnam, where you've got such a young, dynamic population of people who want to progress in their careers very quickly, uh, the best talent in the market typically is not going to work for a family business where there's a lack of clarity uh, about their ability to progress in their career um, on merit. Uh, as opposed to on loyalty to to the family owners. Um, there has been positive development in the way family-owned companies perceive private equity, uh, but I'm stereotyping here, but in general, what we tend to continue to see is they see us um, predominantly as either a, um, a minority partner because they want to maintain majority control forever and pass it on through generations, or as someone they can sell control to and they're checking out. Um, but it's it, it's hard to find opportunities that are in the middle uh, where they really perceive us as a, a pure partner, a true partner. And so do you tend to find that the mix of investments is skewed much more towards the multi-partner business? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, we are leaning as much as possible uh, into that business model um, and so, you know, putting much more prioritization and time on investing in multi-co-founder companies or single single founder companies. Uh, right. And that's, you know, it, a lot of that's because of our model of how we add value post-investment. Um, and our model hasn't worked that well, actually, in, in family companies where, where we put a lot of time and attention on building team um, because that's really what takes market share here uh, in a pretty, pretty uncompetitive market. The, the company that builds the best team tends to make market share. Um, and that isn't easy to do often in a family-owned company. So. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so given that there's a, an increasing supply of potentially interesting investable companies, are you seeing an increasing demand? Are you seeing more and more organizations like yourself, you know, other private equity firms setting up, or are you still uh, pretty unusual in that sense? 
Uh, we actually are surprised that there hasn't been more formation of new GPs, uh, private equity GPs uh, here on the ground. Um, a few have started up in the last year or two, and that's a very positive sign uh, that we're getting uh, GPs uh, maybe raising funds of 50 to 100 million, where we're at the 250 million plus size now. Um, but it's not as many as we had expected. Uh, but what we do see is a huge increase in demand from the regional investors. Um, and, and more recently, much to our surprise, is the arrival of Chinese investors. Um, you know, I've been doing this now at Macon Capital for 10 years. And over those 10 years, uh, I might have had two Chinese investors come through our office and express interest in our portfolio. In the last three months, it's been two per week. Um, now, that's wow. a very, very exciting development uh, because there are some very strong, well-regarded companies in China. Um, and if it's founders of those companies or high net worth individuals or family offices that can bring a lot of expertise and experience in building you know, big billion dollar companies in China, I think that'll be warmly welcomed by by Vietnamese entrepreneurs. Um, so that's a, that's yeah, a good diversification. Uh, but it is the the regional investor set that that is here. Uh, and very aggressively um, looking at Vietnam and hunting for opportunities. Yeah. So what do you think has triggered that sudden increase in interest from China? Um, I think it's, you know, it's a combination of um, some of the macroeconomic trends that China saw in the second half of last year. I think it's a, a movement of uh, high net worth Chinese individuals um, looking to diversify globally, um, where putting all their eggs in one basket in China has been a wonderful strategy for them for a couple decades now. Uh, but starting to diversify is something that makes sense. Um, and I think uh, when they think, when they look to invest outside of China, uh, most of them that I have spoken to have said Vietnam and Indonesia are the next two destinations that make sense for them. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, they all say Vietnam reminds them of what China looked like 10 or 15 years ago. So. Well, when you first said that, my first thought was, um, is it because, you know, Vietnam is really presenting itself and, and proving itself to be a great alternative to China for foreign companies generally that are looking to diversify? You know, has that caught their attention? And they're thinking, well, look, if my, if my peers in, in business are, are, are locating factories there and, and investing in Vietnam, I should be looking at putting capital to work there too. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is the, f the first pioneers that have come here are uh, sub-suppliers or suppliers to the large, large electronics assembly companies, Samsung, Apple, and others. Um, and as they have come here and they've successfully set up shop and they have found Vietnamese floor workers and Vietnamese manufacturing engineers to be a very high caliber, I think the referrals go back to their friends back in China and say, this is a great place to do business. And it's a uh, it's easy to get set up and get started. And, and a lot of the global supply chains moving here. So it's almost like it feels like the words getting out, you know, Vietnam's kind of been just off people's radar for a very long time, despite the fundamentals, despite the opportunity, the possibilities here. Yeah. But it feels like something's happened, something's switched. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think another key tipping point uh, has been in the last, say, 18 to 24 months, where uh, a lot of regional VC uh, investors have recognized that Vietnamese developers, product developers, tech developers are really high caliber. 
And this has been something that's been known for a long time by the regional tech companies, the Singapore-based headquarters, um, who put a lot of their back office product development teams here in Vietnam because the quality of coding was so good. But now they're seeing um, those young coders have evolved into being entrepreneurs and building their own products and their own businesses. And I think that has really woken up a lot of the regional investors to the caliber of entrepreneurs we have here today. So it's, um, it's not only the, the kind of traditional businesses manufacturing subparts for a Samsung phone, but it's also, you know, these, these young, uh, late 20 something, uh, very capable Vietnamese creative talent coders that, that came out of the back office of some regional company are now building their own companies. Yeah. yeah. It feels like a really exciting time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, there, there are headwinds, though. Um, the government has been very proactive to uh, protect uh, the small Vietnamese retail investor. Uh, and so there has been a series of uh, government actions to strengthen the regulatory framework for the bond market, where there was a lot of uh, bonds being marketed to people who probably didn't know what they were buying. Uh, over the last few years. So that's a very positive development. The, the government is strengthening and tightening the regulations in the bond market. But those steps do cause hiccups. And um, in quarter four last year, uh, the government decided to detain and um, investigate several bond issuers who really skirted the rules and went too far uh, to abuse some of the loopholes. Um, and that has spooked uh, some of the retail investors in the public markets, et cetera. But these are, I think, natural kind of points that a lot of economies like Vietnam go through as they strengthen regulatory framework and make things tighter, uh, protecting the small investor. So. Yeah, it sounds like part of the maturing of the market. Correct. That may be a painful process, but um, once, it's, once it happens, it's obviously beneficial. Absolutely, yeah. I, I want to hear more about the government's involvement because obviously Vietnam's government is a very, very significant presence in, in the country, much more so than in perhaps more sort of open liberal democracies. Um, but I'm also really interested to go back to when you were talking about investable companies. Are there any examples you can give me of companies you're particularly excited about? Oh, wow, many. Um, uh, Just choose one. <laughs> okay. Well, I can tell a story about a company we invested in five years ago as a, as a very good example of the kind of companies we're still looking for and meeting. Okay. Um, uh, five years back, um, we looked across many specialty retail sectors because there's quite a lot of fragmentation in many sectors here where general trade still dominates and there's no chain retail of any sense. And uh, one of those specialty sectors we identified was pharmacy. Um, and at the time, uh, there were basically only two chains in the whole country. One had about 30 stores and the other had about 10 stores. And then you had 55,000 independently owned mom and pop pharmacies. So Vietnamese citizens and consumers could go buy drugs at a pharmacy that wasn't challenging to access it. But imagine, you know, some small uh, general trade shop down on the corner uh, in the front uh, entrance of uh, the pharmacist's house, basically. Um, and we identified this as a, as a sector that we saw globally. Uh, it makes sense to scale. There are clear economies of scale of being a large player and uh, bringing trust in product and authenticity in product to the consumer we saw was incredibly important uh, so to elevate the quality of healthcare. So we made a small investment in a, a pharmacy chain called Pharmacity 
And fast forward today, that company has a thousand stores across uh, half the provinces in Vietnam. And uh, we've got you know, very large global pharma players actively collaborating with us on how to you know, ensure um, we deliver uh, a quality of product to people in need of drugs and medicine and other products. And it's just been an absolutely fabulous journey uh, to be you know, alongside and, and growing and partner with a company like that. And that's, that's pretty typical of the kind of opportunities we're looking for, uh, because there, there remain many, many sectors in this country that are still highly fragmented. Um, and you can have that kind of exponential growth um, if you find the founders with a big vision, uh, passion for growing their business quickly, and uh, organized around uh, adopting global best practices in, in doing so along the way. So, Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Um, so that sort of makes me think I, I had a meeting earlier on um, with a business leader who has a number of businesses here and, and worldwide as well. And he got very excited at one point when he was talking about what he sees as kind of a generational shift that's happening in the leadership or is imminent. It's not actually happening yet. But he was talking about, you know, obviously the generation that's currently leading in terms of business, in terms of politics, in, in every sense, is a generation that grew up or was born perhaps during the, the Vietnam War the, or the American War, depending on how you look at it. Um, and, you know, their, their life view and their education and everything was kind of affected and colored by that. Um, perhaps they were educated in the Soviet Union, one of those countries. Um, they've, you know, that has had a big impact on how everything has developed up to this point. He's then saying, well, in the next five to 10 years, the leaders are going to be people that grew up in the 70s or were born in the 70s and grew up in the 80s who had, you know, much, they were much more fixated on the US. They were perhaps educated in Europe or in America and they bring a very different um, view on things. And he he's super excited about that and, and infused everybody in the meeting with this excitement. So I'm kind of intrigued if that's a, a play that you're looking at as well. Well, it's absolutely um, a phenomenon that's playing out here. And, you know, Dan, when I first came here 20, 26 years ago, the phenomenon was that anyone over the age of 70 spoke French. Anyone that was kind of between oh, wow. the ages of 45 to 70 learned Russian as their foreign language. And then the, the cohort that was kind of 30 years and below, they were all learning English. Um, Fast forward to today, you know, that, that 30 and below cohorts, you know, 55 and below, and they're in senior leadership positions. And absolutely, um, there has been a, a shift in mentality and thinking and approach. Um, but fundamentally, Vietnam's uh, government and party is still a very much a consensus based uh, approach. Um, and while you know, the consequence of that is sometimes regulatory change here moves a bit slower uh, than other countries. But the benefit is that once a decision's made, it sticks. And that provides a lot of predictability for investors and business uh, people to make big investments and really think long term. Because the, the governmental yeah. system does really um, make decisions that, that don't change in the future. When it comes to the business community, um, what I'm finding is the, that cohort of people who are 50 years of age or lower, they're far more global um, they're far more internet savvy. Uh, they're much faster to adopt ideas or practices from abroad uh, than, say, that that cohort that you know is now in their 60s and 70s um, 
that were a bit more resistant to doing something that was unfamiliar. Uh, but today, you know, the business leader of today is embracing change and embracing uh, great ideas from abroad. Yeah, which gives me the sense that, um, you know, the progress so far has been immense. And as I say, you know, the, the, the way Vietnam feels now versus four years ago when I was here, when it was pretty vibrant, it, it feels more so now. Um, but I get the sense that we're going to see an acceleration of development, particularly economic development. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, there, there's... Um... There are some challenges. <laughs> it sounds like you wanted to say no. Um, well, it's it's about getting the balance right. Um, and I think the government is very aware that there's a lot of catch-up to do in terms of infrastructure development. Um, and the private sector has wonderfully developed at a very fast rate. Uh, but the government is, is struggling to keep pace with that in terms of building expressways and airports and rail systems. Um, now, they've done a great job in building infrastructure in terms of telecommunications and internet connectivity uh, and mobile phone connectivity. Um, but, you know, there's some catch up to do. And um, if there are any pockets of areas or things that will slow down uh, future growth, it's you know, the government needing to get these the road infrastructure upgraded and more or airports built, so to speak. Um, aside from that, um, I, I think there's very few limitations. Um, it's, a, it's a country full of in, incredibly hardworking, very optimistic and highly educated people. <laughs> and when you've got that demographic, you don't need much of a tailwind. I mean, it, it, it kind of drives itself forward. So, What about the environment? Um, I know v- Vietnam recently became, I think, the third country to sign up for a just energy transition partnership, which obviously we're not going to go into that in detail, but that is aimed at creating, um, you know, sort of fair access to electricity, to power, um, but with a, uh, an environmental focus on it. So it's a zero, ultimately zero, net zero emissions. Um, is there a focus on preserving and protecting the environment here, or is it still a sort of growth at all costs mentality? No, it's a, it's a very balanced approach. Now, we don't invest in the energy sector, so I'm going to get some of the statistics possibly wrong or a bit off, but... Um, one of the things that Vietnam has done incredibly well in the last decade is to provide uh, incentives and policies for the build out of solar and wind. And, um, you know, among Southeast Asian countries, I'm pretty sure that solar installation here in Vietnam has far outpaced any other country in the region. Um, and that's mostly due to a lot of proactive uh, thinking from the government and uh, very attractive feed in tariffs. Um, that uh, brought a lot of investors here uh, to build out very large solar capacity. Um, But Vietnam has already uh, benefited from uh, thinking about renewable energy for quite quite a few decades because they started with a lot of hydropower development in the 80s and 90s. Um, So they've had a very somewhat balanced approach to to power generation, making sure as much of it as possible is renewable uh, and sustainable. Um, what I do see more recently is a growing awareness, uh, I think, among both Vietnamese government leaders and uh, the Vietnamese population, that Vietnam is at risk of being impacted uh, disproportionately by climate change, uh, given that we have a very large uh, delta here in the, the south, the Mekong River Delta, that is uh, very low elevation. Um, 
And if we experience continued sea level rise uh, or increased frequency of tropical storms, a country like Vietnam is going to be disproportionately hit. Um, and so you know, I think the government leadership recognizes that they need to move first and uh, demonstrate that they're going to take responsibility uh, and join first world countries in, in doing what we can to mitigate climate change. And, and you know, uh, they've done very well with that. Um, I do also see uh, very positive social movement among young Vietnamese that care about the natural environment here in their country. Um, about four years ago, a large property developer proposed building a cable car through the middle of Vietnam's largest cave. And this is a globally significant cave because it's the largest cave in the world and it's in a UNESCO mm -hmm. World Heritage Site. And that cable car would have, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that cable car would have easily gone forward. The developer would have gotten license from the provincial governor and it would have happened. But there was a movement of young Vietnamese uh, below the age of 25 that campaigned and gathered uh, a, a group of like-minded individuals via social media to campaign against this cable car. And pretty large outpouring social movement uh, to stop the construction of that cable car, which is phenomenal. And, and that's not something I think we would have seen a decade ago. Um, so it's the very much driven by the younger population that cares very much about the beauty of their country and the preservation of the natural beauty as well. So. Yeah, that's uh, well, and there's a lot of young people in Vietnam as well. So that, uh, that gives some <laughs> extra power. Yeah, um, that that's an interesting or a useful segue in a way. I, I understand that you're putting together a new fund, which is called Mekong Earth and Forests. Um, That's right. Can you tell us a bit, bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, those of us that are partners here at Mekong Capital, um, we, we want to do our own part to be responsible for mitigating climate change. And we, we looked at how we could possibly do that. And it dawned on us that you know, what we do every single day across our 15 portfolio companies by taking our proven post-investment framework how to support those companies to achieve their long-term visions that we apply that in cold chain logistics or, or um, a pharmacy retail chain or in a restaurant chain, we can easily apply that same framework uh, to a company doing sustainable agriculture or sustainable forestry. And so we've decided to go out and raise a $200 million uh, climate-based natural climate solutions fund um, focusing on the two areas that we're passionate about as individuals. Um, we could have gone after solar or wind or maybe other things related to climate change, but we picked the two that we're passionate about, which are regenerative agriculture and forestry. Um, and uh, this fund will operate across four countries, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand. And we've been astonished at the quality of pipeline we've been able to generate. Um, we have met really interesting entrepreneurs developing incredibly interesting ag tech solutions. Uh, we've met uh, people, you know, expanding uh, very large plantation forest companies, but doing it both with exotic species and native species and, and sequestering carbon as they go. Um, and so it's very inspiring what a lot of young entrepreneurs and, and qualified people are doing in the sector. And, and we want to essentially create a new asset class, um, which is, you know, investing in these type of um, long-term uh, nature-based solutions uh, that, you know, it's, it's not a very obvious asset class in today's investment community, uh, but it's something we want to be responsible to create. So. Yeah. And, and you mean that on a global scale, but you're not really seeing any other examples or? 
there is are, it just a regional? I, I could count on one hand, um, five fingers or less, uh, the number of funds globally that are active in emerging markets doing this type of investing. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's been challenging for them to attract capital. Uh, they've had to come up with very creative solutions to do so. Uh, concepts like blended finance, where they start by securing concessional grants from a philanthropic donor or a public donor. And then those donors are willing to take first loss or lower returns. Uh, and that attracts private institutional capital that you know, is demanding 15% or higher RRs or has a much higher perceived risk of investing in these countries. Um, and so I think it's our duty to, to launch a fund, uh, deploy it, and demonstrate to the global commercial investors that their perception of risk is wrong. Um, the risk is actually lower than they perceive. And um, if they you know, were to look at the risk return ratio that an 8% IRR uh, may be absolutely wonderful if they're delivering a social and climate impact at the same time as generating that 8% return. But I think overall, among most uh, institutional investors, uh, the perception of risk is extremely high to be doing these type of investments in a frontier country like Laos or Cambodia or an emerging market like Vietnam. And I think it's our job as a fund manager on the ground here to, to demonstrate that the risk is actually lower than what is perceived. Uh, I think that will mobilize a lot more money for these, for these types of investments in the future. Yeah, I think that'd be amazing. Um, when you mentioned that some of the other funds that are trying to do this have had trouble raising capital, have you had, what, what sort of feedback are you getting on that? It is extremely challenging. Uh, first and foremost, um, a lot of LPs or investors say, well, we don't know which bucket to put you in. Are you um, a growth fund? Are you a buyout fund? Are you a VC fund? And we said, no, we're none of those. <laughs> we're a climate <laughs> fund. Um, and they say, oh, well, then maybe you should talk to our ag investing team. Um, so what we're, what we're finding is that the way a lot of LPs are organized and structured around teams or sectors or geographies is not a perfect fit for what we're doing. Um, and that's fine. It's absolutely fine. Um, we knew it would be a challenging fundraise in the first place. The second thing we're finding challenging is what we're committed to deliver are environmental impacts, uh, such as how many millions tons of soil have been regenerated or how many millions of hectares have been uh, re, you know, reforested uh, or how many millions of tons of carbon have been sequestered. Um, and that's we're looking for investors who share those as the outcomes we're committed to, as opposed to saying we're underwriting to a 15% IRR. And that's been challenging to, to navigate towards investors who are committed to those kind of um, environmental outcomes as opposed to an investment return. Um, now, we might be trying to do something totally abnormal here, um, but, but we want to be upfront that that is the core purpose for doing this fund. It's not to chase a 15% IRR. Um, so I think that's the second challenge we're facing in, in navigating the investor community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from my experience in covering impact investing, it does seem that there's a lot of organizations out there that would be um, happy to, to at least take a look at what you're trying to do, because it does seem like you're um, your impact goes beyond the actual physical environmental impact. It goes to the impact of creating a new sector, as you say, or a new kind of category of fund and, and essentially de-risking something that people think is very risky or demonstrating the lack of risk. Yeah. So. But so what's the, um, 
just briefly, what's the sort of timetable? Are you, you're in fundraising stage at the moment? By the yeah, we launched fundraising uh, late last year. Uh, we're in the process to secure an anchor LP. Uh, the goal to do so is by midsummer. Uh, and then once we have secured that anchor LP, then you know, market the fund broadly to, to a wider community. Um, but at this stage, I think we're going to end up needing to have a blended finance solution where we, we do have one or two concessional investors, uh, either a philanthropic fund or a public donor who's willing to, to kind of underwrite return uh, or a 0% IRR, so to speak, one X on multiple cost. Um, and that'll help us attract uh, the commercial investors who do want to participate in these type of funds, but they still have hurdle rates. So, yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. But, but uh, we're, we're hungry to get the fund raised because our pipeline's amazing. <laughs> and uh, yeah. we're, we're eager to deploy and support these, these great right. entrepreneurs to right. build their businesses. Yeah. And they're, they're not going to wait around forever. Um, exactly. So just to switch gears slightly, um, you know, one of the big stories that comes out of Vietnam in the, the sort of global sense, certainly what we're seeing in, in the US, is about the anti-corruption drive that the government is yeah. going through at the moment. What, what impact is that having in, in your world? Uh, well, this anti-corruption drive led by the General Secretary of the Communist Party, uh, Mr. Chong, um, he has been pursuing this for five years. Uh, so this is nothing new that just came up yesterday. It's, uh, it's been a journey he's been on for quite some time. Um, and it's warranted. And it's going to leave very long-term benefits. And it's something the foreign investment community has been requesting for, you know, 15 years, 20 years. So I think as a foreign investor and the rest of the foreign investors here, we all appreciate it very much. In the short term, there are some serious impacts. Um, in the short term, um, any sector that relies on governmental approvals, uh, those governmental approvals are coming slower. Um, so if you're a real estate developer or you're a port developer, or you're building a, an LNG uh, power plant, um, you know what maybe a few years ago took six months to a year to get all your licenses. Uh, now it's you know two, three years, if ever. Uh, what's going on is a lot of the government officers that do need to process approvals and sign off on projects, um, they're just, there's a lack of predictability and certainty uh, about who their boss is going to be next week uh, as you know, the corruption uh, crackdown campaign goes after now ministerial level leaders and then deputy ministers. And so I think Within the government apparatus, um, rightly, the government officers are just taking a very conservative approach to, to approvals. And it's, it's slowing down those sectors that do rely on it. But there are some other impacts to the people of Vietnam. So, for instance, um, there's been a, quite a lot of changeover in the leadership of the Ministry of Health. Um, and what's going on now is uh, most of the public hospitals uh, are not able to actually buy medicine or supplies for their hospitals because oh, wow. there's a lack of uh, sign-off and approvals at the ministerial level on tenders and you know the annual price fixing and whatnot and so um it's caused actually disruption for people to actually get a surgery uh or get health care and i think the government's very aware that, that that's not sustainable and they have to take care of their people so they're looking for workarounds but that they're they're very very much are negative impacts at this time but yeah. um I think it's a it's a step we have to go through um, to refresh and renew uh, you know the level of ethics in government, and I think it will serve the country very very well in the long term. Yeah, 
certainly if I think back to when I first started focusing on frontier and emerging markets um, as a journalist, Vietnam, I think it's probably 12, 15 years ago, Vietnam was always considered like a country where there was huge potential, but the corruption's a problem. And um, it's, it's funny, I hadn't really thought about that much until recently, and it's been kind of highlighted with this anti-corruption drive, but it does feel like something that would be extremely healthy to, to be able to shed that reputation, legitimately shed that reputation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and in the region, um, a lot of regional investors and, and Asian business uh, friends will ask, so is this corruption drive politically motivated or is it actually got fundamental reasons behind no, it? I've asked the same question two or three times, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, my personal read is that it is um, indiscriminate. It is very much oriented around protecting you know, the small guy on the street. Um, it's about ensuring that you know a Vietnamese wanting to get a driver's license doesn't have to pay a small facilitation payment just to process normal paperwork. Um, and uh, I think it's very much driven by fundamentals uh, as opposed to some kind of um, shell game to you know, reward or discipline people who are disloyal. Um, so it's, you know, I think it's got all the right motivations behind it. Right, right. Good. Um, so again, to take you back to an earlier part of the conversation where you, you, know, you mentioned you'd been here for 25 years. Um, we know that Vietnam has been through some ups and downs in that time and investing in private equity has not always been particularly easy. Was there ever a time when you thought of packing up and leaving? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, but that was in the 90s. Um, in fact, I came here um, to work for a private equity fund manager that had a $20 million fund. And right away in my first three months, I realized that it was going nowhere. There was no private sector to invest in at that time at all. It was either investing in a joint venture with the military or a joint venture with the state or enterprise, which is not really investing. It's, uh, it's basically business development. Um, so right then, I mean, I had been on the ground three months and I said, uh, well, do I go home or do I stay? Um, but I made the choice to stay and I, I ended up working for an NGO for four years uh, in the conservation field. Um, but, you know, several times along the way, I thought, huh, do I stay or do I go? Do I stay or I go? And one morning I just woke up and said, this is such a great place. And I enjoy living here. And I just wonderful working with Vietnamese people. And I just made a choice. I'm just going to stay. And I, you know, that was 20 years ago. And I've never looked back. And I've just enjoyed every moment of being here. Now, of course, there are challenges um, in any business, in any sector, whether you're a private equity investor or building a construction company or building a, a school. Um, but persistence pays off. And um, this is a country where being patient and being persistent uh, pays off in the wrong, long run. And, um, and no, so um, not the past. I haven't once thought about changing my mind on this country. Yeah. So. And, and had you thought about it in the past, I'm sure you wouldn't be thinking about it now. It sounds like a, a great place to be at this particular moment. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, now, I'm American by, by origin. And um, the question I often ask myself is, what's in my future, right? I'm, I'm 48 years old now. When I get to my late 50s, 60s, where do I want to spend the rest of my life? Um, do I go home to the US or stay here in Vietnam? And for the last five years or so, I thought, naturally, I'll go home and I'll be where I was born. Um, 
but more and more, given how much Vietnam's developing and modernizing, and it's just such a you know, easy place to live and a wonderful place to be a businessman. I mean, more and more, I'm thinking I'll just retire here. <laughs> Why not? I've spent more than half my life here already. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and depending on where you came from in the States, you might not want to go back there anyway. <laughs> that might not be number one, two or three on your list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, listen, it's been fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate your insights and you know sharing all this. It's um, As you can tell, I've, I've been having a pretty amazing experience in Vietnam these past few days. Um, it's always been an amazing place to come to, but it just feels the energy is just coalescing and, and really... Um, triggering what feels like a, a, a significant step forward. So, you know, great to kind of yeah, share your thanks, thoughts Dan. on that. Yeah. Um, thank you for joining us. Yeah, great. Absolutely. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Frontier Markets News Podcast. We were joined by Chad Ovell, a partner at the Vietnam-based private equity firm Mekong Capital. As always, you can get the latest summary of news from the Frontier and Growth Markets at FrontierMarkets.co. And you can also sign up there for our weekly newsletter, which will land in your inbox every Saturday and provide you with a smorgasbord of the week's key news from smaller emerging markets. The music on this podcast is What's the Angle by Shane Ivers from silvermansound.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want us to be able to produce more of them, please share it with your friends, your colleagues, your followers on social media, your family, really anyone else you can think of. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Send me an email at dan at frontiermarkets.co. And that's a wrap. Until next time.